would like to extend one more time a welcome to Nick Gibson as he comes to share with us this morning. So please give him a warm Brian welcome. Hey, thanks everybody. So I want to say something just really quick. This is not officially part of my talk. Because what I've noticed is the people who have talked to me after these talks are basically the people that implicitly know they need to be yelled at about something. And I realize that my persona is kind of coming across as the guy who yells at people about stuff, which some of you I think are enjoying, and other of you probably aren't. Um, but especially those of you who are in the Christian ministries major and are going to do church ministry, you need to understand that what I do is nuanced with three or four other things in my church day in and day out that make this persona possible to not be hurtful to people. And it has to do with how I preach the gospel, how that functions, what I do every day in my pastoral ministry, how I demonstrate I love the people I minister to in the city I live in. And without those, what you're watching me do right now that you might think looks interesting, and oh, I'd love to be able to yell at people like that. It, it hurts people. It doesn't help people. Okay, I just want to lay that on there, make that clear, because I don't want some of you young whippersnacker guys to run out of here and think that, you know, oh, I'll have a ministry like that. Because it'll just be a ministry of damaging people. Can I, is that clear? This means yes, this means no. Okay. Um, so this, okay, this morning what we're going to talk about is the mission of the church. Last night was identity of the church. And this morning we're going to talk about the mission of the church. And I realize that this is a little bit delicate because there's a lot of things people talk about in relationship to this. And I'm not, not going to spend a lot of time on this. But one of the things, one of the, the sexiest words of the last 10 years in Christian ministry and publishing has been the word missional. Have you heard the word missional somewhere? Right? Okay, well then you're not reading or listening to anything, okay, if you haven't. And so it's very easy for people to be like, well, I, the mission of the church is to be missional, dude, right? Which, okay, way to win an argument by just putting a label on something and not making an argument. That's really clever of you. But one of the things that you have to say is, you know, what... What does being missional actually mean? What does that word mean? Because people use it, and they don't know what it means, and it's actually evolved a lot over the last 10 years. I have heard the word missional used in at least these six different ways. Missional versus attractional. Missional versus ingrown. Missional versus irrelevant. Missional versus evangelistic. Missional versus institutional. And missional, missional versus reductionistic. The first three, I wholeheartedly agree with. The second three are ridiculously not true, okay? Now, when you look at the first one, attractional, that was actually the original published use of this word in the American evangelical church. It was missional instead of attractional. It was instead of building big mega churches that have really cool programs that are very expensive and staff heavy churches in which people have to give enormous amounts of money and none of it can go to missions because we're paying for health care for large staffs and people don't have to volunteer. Instead of doing that, why not have a church that does things out in the community and draws people to Christ by going out rather than telling people to come and see? The Old Testament was come and see. Nation of Israel, come and see. The New Testament is go and win. Right? So shouldn't we have churches where our ministry model is to go out rather than to say, why don't you come see? Now, I'm not sure you have to have that hard a dichotomy. But there's certainly a point to be made there. The second is ingrown. Andy Stanley's quote is the best one I can think of on this. Is, is your church spending more energy trying to keep or trying to reach? It's very normal for churches. The inertia in churches is always to keep. And it takes... It takes courage and a sense of mission to say 
We have to spend an enormous amount of our energy reaching, not keeping. And we have to envision our people that we're trying to keep that we are here to reach. Now, I could do, there's a whole 30-hour class on that one that we can't do, so take whoever's teaching the class on that next semester. The third one is irrelevant. Um, People are like, we need to be missional, not irrelevant, which is a very poorly constructed phraseology. The missiological terms are contextualization versus obscurantism, right? So there's the gospel, and I'm going to talk to you about the gospel. Now, I'm going to choose language and phraseology and illustrations, and based on what I use, I'm either going to move towards you or away from you, right? So if I'm in Manhattan... Am I going to use college football illustrations in my sermon? Probably not. I'm going to use like arts illustrations and like business illustrations. And, and if I use political illustrations, they're going to be wildly liberal ones, probably. Right? Right? Okay, so my church right now, the city I live in votes 85% Democrat across the board in every election. Doesn't matter who's running. Right? When I was pastoring in Panama City, in the second Bush W election, it voted 90% for George W. Bush. Okay? And I led people to Christ in both places. And I, I talk totally differently in each place. Not because I believe different things or I'm some kind of weird chameleon, but because every time you make a choice, look, look for example, in New York City, Tim Keller says this, in New York City, the minute I open my mouth and speak in English, I'm moving towards 40% of people and away from 60% of the people. Because 60% of the people in New York City, English isn't their first language. It's not their heart language. Every choice that we make about how we set up our church, the way we dress, the way we talk, the illustrations we use, all of that moves us towards some and away from others. And what we talk about has a specific relationship to the questions people are asking or not asking. Now you can say, well, if you answer the questions they're asking, what if they're asking stupid questions? Well, if they're non-Christians and they don't have a Christian worldview, some of the questions they ask are going to be bad questions. But you have to show them why that question leads to this question, which leads to that question, which leads to this question, which is the right question. And you have to take them through that and show them that now that's the question. And if we answer this one, it answers that one, that one, that one, and that one. And so let's talk about this, and here's Jesus. You have to do the work of contextualization. And if by missional you mean we need to do a better job of contextualization, my response is absolutely. Now, the problem is, is that there are piles of American writers who are aiming what they're writing at people in their 20s. That what they mean is these other three. By missional, they mean, well, by missional, we're like, we're about the whole mission of the kingdom of God, not just like evangelism. And what that ends up meaning is, we don't want the cultural derision that comes with trying to win converts, but some of these really nice social programs, nobody's going to hate us for, and that's what we're going to do because they're going to really like us, and we might get around to talking about Jesus at some point as one possible way of salvation if people are so inclined. And that's just not going to work. In relationship to a biblical doctrine of the church. Does that make sense? Institutional, it's like, well, we're, we're going to be we're, we're organic. We're not institutional. Well, guess what? All of these people who wrote those did. They all started their own churches. Which are all organizations. Because here's this crazy little fact. When people get together, even informally, they create social rules that are functional organizations. Your friendship clique is a informal organization. It has rules. It has functionality. You do certain things. You do them regularly. Human beings, when they come together, create organizations and they create manners because that's what sets people at ease and helps people relate to each other. It's basic anthropology. It's inescapable. Organizations must exist in order to, for organisms to live. 
you, you can't create a dichotomy. I know it sounds sexy, and so you can say that you hate the whole institutionalized church because of it, but it's anthropologically silly and ignorant. Sorry, you're not having a moment there. And then last is, is, re, is reductionistic. You know, people say, well, when you say the mission of the church is like making disciples or doing evangelism or telling people about Jesus, isn't that reductionist? I mean, the kingdom of God is about bringing restoration to all things. So is it the mission of God that broad? And shouldn't we as the church care about God's whole mission, not just one little part of that, and be just, just trying to get converts, right? I mean, that sounds like a not—I mean, it doesn't sound like a terrible argument, Right? So there's three theological distinctions in relationship to the church that I want to just get in your head so you have them as tools to think about this, because there's only so much you can do in 30 minutes, right? The first is, there is a difference between the mission of God and the mission of church. The missio dei and the missio ecclesia are related, but they're not the same thing. Let's do, let's do a thought experiment. Okay, so the missio dei is God's mission. So that's everything God is doing, to bring about creation, redemption, and restoration. It's his mission. Okay? Now, let's do a thought experiment. Is the Missio Dei, the mission of God, the same thing without exception? There, does it have a relation, a Venn diagram, identifica, identification of identity? 100%, 100%. Is the mission of God and the mission of the church the same? Did God give us his mission? So here's a counterfactual thought experiment. Can we think of things in the mission of God that are clearly not in the mission of the church? And if the answer is, is if you know anything about Christianity and your IQ is north of about 50, the answer is yes. Okay? Right? For example, the cross. You did not have a part of that. We are never, you and I are never going to have a part of the atoning work of Jesus. That is part of the mission of God. The work was entrusted to the Son. It was done through the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. The only part human beings had in it was people who were not part of the church. He was crucified at the hands of sinful men. By definition, people of unfaith. Right? Which is what we all were until he drew us to himself, right? So there's one example. Another example is who wants to do the Crusades again? Anybody? Who wants to do that one? Well, what were the Crusades? The Crusades were the belief that the punishment of the wicked in the Missio Dei could be thought of as part of the Missio Ecclesia. That it could be part of the Christian nations to go and slay the wicked Muslims— because the mission of God clearly says in the Bible that in the end, God will slay the wicked. But what does the Bible actually say about the slaying of the wicked? That was also entrusted to the Christ. And the Christ will come and do the work of judgment himself. Therefore, it is not your job and not my job to slay the wicked. But we know that because the mission of the church and the Missio Dei aren't the same thing. They're related but they aren't the same thing. And therefore, when somebody gets up in front of you or you're reading a book and they say, well, the mission of God is this, therefore let's do X, what you should say is that is a raging non sequitur. The one does not follow from the other. Sorry if I have to explain that word. <clears throat> the mission of God is everything that God is doing. Much of that he has entrusted to his own sovereign providence. Some of it he has entrusted to his son. Some of it he has entrusted to the spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, and a certain part of it he has entrusted to his church. And some of it he has entrusted to his church as individual Christians scattered throughout the cultures and peoples of the world. 
Some things he specifically commanded for the church organizational and institutional to do, and some things for the church as an organic dispersion of people to do. And without those distinctions, we're going to get enormously confused. So if you say, okay, wait, so if there's a distinction between those two, then what, then if we're not supposed to partner with God in the whole Messio Day, then what are we supposed to partner with God in? And my argument would be, well, let's start with what we are explicitly told to do, right? That's, it's actually not a huge mystery what we're supposed to do. It turns out that the, that the mission of the church is a commission, you know what a commission is? It's to say, go do this. You have the authority, the right, the resources, and the responsibility to do this. Now think about that. There's actually at least four great commissions in the Bible. The best well-known is the Matthew one. Most of you can probably say it, right? But think about it. What's in, why is it called the great commission? It's not just the go make disciples part. It's Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, meaning I have the authority to tell you you can do this. Therefore, if your government or your mom or your teacher or your whoever, your generation tells you you shouldn't do this, I'm just letting you know, he, Jesus said, I have all the authority in heaven and earth. And I'm telling you, go. Therefore, you have the authority to do what Jesus said. And then he says what he's telling you to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the part that we love to leave out and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Right? Not a lot of people remember that part, right? And then he says what? You have the resources. That is his presence. And I will be with you to the very end of the age. That is, as long as this commission endures, is how long? As long as I'm going to be with you to the end of the age, that's your commission. This is what you're supposed to do. Now, Go and do it. It's his last words before he ascends to do his job in the Great Commission, which is to be with us by being with the Father and contending for us as our great high priest. He's doing his job, and he told us what our job is. And not just once in Matthew, but a number of times. The least well-known is this one in Luke's Gospel. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high, so that he could give another great commission as soon as the book of Acts opens, where he says again, you will be my witnesses. That's the commission. Now, Kevin DeYoung says this. He wrote a book with Greg Gilbert called What is the Mission of the Church? I really would actually recommend that fairly highly. It's a, it's a pretty good book. There's three chapters on the relationship of the mission of the church to social justice, which I think are pretty clear-headed, which are not anti-doing um, good things to people. Um, but he clarifies the doctrinal categories pretty well. But this is a paraphrase from that book. If you're looking for, oh, no, this is a direct quote. If you're looking for a picture of the early church giving itself to creation care, plans for societal renewal, and strategies to serve the community in Jesus' name, you will not find them in Acts. But if you're looking for preaching, teaching, and the centrality of the word, this is your book. Now, part of the confusion that people can get into is, is creation care commanded in the Bible? Directly commanded in the Bible. Pretty much. But it's part of the creation mandate on all humans. So does it apply to us? Absolutely. 
And should we be motivated to do it in Jesus' name because of the gospel? Well, yes. But it, it's, it's commissioned on all of humanity to sub, subdue and care for all of creation in Genesis. In addition to that, we as the church are given another commission that we're to do, which isn't that. It's something else. Does that make sense? So as a human, you are commissioned by God towards creation care. Right? As a Christian and part of the church, you are commissioned as the church to do the work of making disciples and being a witness for the gospel that through repentance and forgiveness, the kingdom can be received, which is one of the things that is worth thinking about. But, but whenever you think about, well, what's our mission? You've got to start with the explicit commands before you get to the implicit partnerships. Are there things in the mission of God that we can implicitly partner with God in as he seeks to do them in the form of restoration? Yeah. Yeah, I think there are. There's some things we can do along the way, and I think we should do. But we, those can never take precedence or even compete with the explicit commission of the church's mission. The second is understanding the difference between what theologians call the gospel of the cross and the gospel of the kingdom. Has anybody heard of that before? Making that distinction at all? This is how it sort of gets started. The gospel of the cross would be this. The forgiveness of sins that comes through the Savior to all who repent and believe the message. What they receive is the good news that they are now part of the kingdom, which is the holistic message of all the blessings that come to those who have come under God's rule through that faith. The reason—now, there's not two Gospels. What I'm saying is in the Bible, namely the New Testament, the word gospel is used to refer to both of those things. Sometimes it means more narrowly repentance and faith and being justified and forgiven through faith in Jesus to eternal life. And then sometimes the word is used to the holistic group of blessings that happen to people who come in that way. And what happens in some of the writing on the mission of the church is they say, well, aren't we about the gospel? And isn't the gospel about all the blessings that come from faith? And therefore, it's the same argument as the Missio Dei, you see? Same argument, it's just a different path. And one of the things that that you should know about this is the word gospel is never used of any other subset of the gospel other than repentance and forgiveness. So if you say, well, there's the gospel of the kingdom, and that's all the blessings. Okay, well, all of those blessings have numerous other subsets that you could refer to as good news. And therefore, you could use the word gospel, but the Bible never does that. The gospel of the kingdom has only one subset of which you can say gospel, and that is repentance and faith that leads to justifying forgiveness in relationship to God, which always causes someone to receive the gospel of the whole kingdom, which is every blessing that comes with this. When you realize that use of the word gospel, you can recognize that there is this holistic gospel of the kingdom and recognize that the gospel of the kingdom is received only through the gospel of the cross. And therefore, the gospel of the cross is ultimately and absolutely primary, which is important to recognize because sometimes we use the language of building the kingdom. Have you ever heard somebody say that? We're going to build the kingdom, right? Now, that's not entirely wrong to say, depending on what you mean by kingdom. If by kingdom you mean the church as a faithful witness to the cosmic kingdom in the world, then it's perfectly fine to say that. But the relationship of human beings to the kingdom in the New Testament is is almost all the verbs are passive. The kingdom is something that already exists. So here's a newsflash, right? God already reigns. Okay? He's already king over everything. 
The difference is whether or not his, his reign is imposed. And we exist in a period of time in which the gospel goes forward to all traitors and rebels so that they could come into that kingdom before it's fully imposed by the returning Savior. And so therefore, the church becomes a faithful witness to build the kingdom. But what that means is, so that as many people as possible might receive that kingdom that already exists, does not need to be built, and that Jesus will bring. And so hence these verses that refer to it that way. Even as far back as Daniel. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. The focus in Daniel is... God just brings it. There's all these bad kings, and then all of a sudden, God just goes himself, and there's his kingdom. There's a number of places in the Bible, just read the Old Testament, and God's like, you just stay still, I'm going to do this. Now, you've got to be very careful in your partnering with God theology when the whole first half, two-thirds of the book is, you just stay there and trust me, and I'm going to do this, basically without you. Okay? Just, just watch. Are you watching? Right now. I'm going to do it right now. Okay, Mark, there's, there's three versions of this, but I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Mark 1.15, and this is Jesus' message again and again and again, is it, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Right? That's a, you got to really pay attention to what, the implications of what that, the kingdom of God is near. Therefore, what's the response to the kingdom of God being near? Repent and believe it. That is, receive it because it's coming. It's already something that exists. It doesn't have to be built. It is. It is simply God's rule. And it's coming, and you want to be part of it. Therefore, the appropriate action is not to get a shovel, but to repent and believe. You see? And that's not to say you should, you should get all cranky with people when they say, let's build the kingdom. Because you've got to listen to what they mean. What they mean is, let's serve Jesus and do something. And when they mean that, don't get all, you know, angry with them. And be like, you can't say that, it's passive. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to make monsters here. Okay. It's important to recognize this because one of the things that can easily pass over you is the whole history of this kind of controversy about what the church is. Mark Twain labeled the turn of the 20th century the Gilded Age because it was a time of enormous technological advancement in America. American life got enormously better in the teens and 20s, and even it, almost to the beginning of the 30s kind of went haywire there. But, um, but that's when we started using oil. We had, we had boats that could, like, run on oil, and all kinds of crazy, amazing stuff was happening. But at the same time, income inequality was going crazy. Urban problems were getting a whole lot worse. And people were asking the question, how does the church relate to this? And so there, be, there became a concept called the social gospel, which is essentially the idea that the gospel was to bring heaven to earth in this sense. That as heaven was described, it was described as an ideal society, the way things ought to be. And therefore the church should give its energy, blood, and sweat, and money to making the world as it should be. That is, may your will be done on, on earth as it is in heaven. Right? It was this idea that that's what we should be doing. And so therefore the gospel has a social output as its identity. That the world getting better, the, the world getting to the place where it looks like heaven is the good news. The response, now, around the same time, the namesake of the school, William, Williams James Bryan, believed something very similar. His politics were very much the same as these early progressives. But he believed it for a different reason. He didn't believe that was the gospel. But he believed that the implications of the gospel led to very similar public policies. 
The deal, the problem was that he died in 1925. And the fundamentalist movement in fighting the social gospel moved away from the kinds of social action the American liberals and modernists were doing. The most famous turn on that was in 1947, a book was published by Carl F.H. Henry called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, in which he basically argued this. This is a summary by J. Julie Scott, a Wheaton professor. Henry believed that in rejecting the false theology of the social gospel, fundamentalism had illegitimately neglected the social implications of the gospel and unnecessarily given the moral high ground to the modernists. Do you see how that works? In saying, well, we don't believe that that is the gospel— We can't do that. They pulled back and focused on revivalist evangelism. Which was sort of right and sort of totally wrong, right? And so what he saw was between about the time William James Bryan died in 25 until 47, fundamentalism became more ingrown, more drawing back from culture, not sending their kids to public universities, but making all of their own schools, pulling back, not doing any kind of social action, not getting involved in politics. And Henry's like, we can't keep doing this. We, we've, got, we've got to engage out with culture. We can't live according to the second degree of separation. We, we can't do this stuff. We've got, to, we've got to engage. And so these people were called the neo-evangelicals, and then they were later called the evangelicals. And the streams of fundamentalism kind of went like this, and like this, and like this. Before 1930, a fundamentalist and evangelical were the exact same thing. Between 47 and, I don't know, 15 years ago, there were some significant differences. And they're, they're starting to kind of get back around the same thing these days. The reason that that's important is that there's a whole history in this that you would better know. Because there are some ways in which when we use the phrase social justice, a lot of writers that use that phrase mean social gospel. It's just a reincarnation. And if you don't know the history, and if you don't know what it should mean and what it shouldn't mean, you're going to end up in a lot of theological trouble. If you can define social justice well— it becomes a usable phrase by which we can really take ground and by which we can refight for the moral high ground that the church really ought to have. But if you don't understand some of this background and some of the context of the church, then we're going to just be in a big load of trouble and we're going to take on theology that we wouldn't accept otherwise, but we, we take it on because we don't understand the distinction in the language. And so we go, oh yeah, that sounds right. And we emotionally commit to it, and we don't, we don't, we're not careful enough to realize that if it means this, it's really gospel-centered. And if it means this, it's totally wrong. Which, okay, let me look, just short caveat here. Um, I'm in charge of running two Christian schools, and so I hire a lot of teachers. And do you know who the people who are the most theologically illiterate, unformed disciples on all the staffs of the two schools are? This might hurt your feelings, so just— Brace yourself a little bit. Do you know who they are? They're always the, the, the teachers that went to Christian colleges. Almost without exception. And here's why. When you go to the secular college, you've got to fight for your life. You just gotta fight. That's what I, I just got to fight for your life. And if you survive, most people don't survive, and so they don't come apply to my Christian school. And the ones that survive are tough. Right? And, and they say, they read their Bibles, they had to say, you go to the Christian college, and it's, it's the problem with, it's, it's all right here. It's right there for you. Nobody's trying to kill you. It's like, you know. And what happened, and you're in a time of your life where you don't really know what you're going to need in five years. And there's all this instruction around you that is amazing. There's all these teachers that, that could mentor you, people's brains that you can pick, stuff that you can learn, libraries that have amazing resources. And you just, you, you re, you, you'll realize it 20 years from now, and you'll be like, what the heck? 
Do not waste where you are right now. There's so much that you could learn here from this faculty, from this community, but you've got to believe that you're going to go out and it's not going to be simple and people aren't going to pat you on the butt and say, oh, you're so intelligent. Like you have to become a person of substance. You can in this place. But the thing is, is because nobody's shooting at you, you might not go, well, I better learn how to do that. Right? You know, it's like the soldier who didn't, who didn't learn how to di- re- disassemble and reassemble his, his M16 because he, it just didn't seem important. And then it jams in a firefight later on. Well, guess what? You can't go back to basic training at that moment. <laughs> You're already in the fray. Okay, last point quickly. Oh, sorry. And that is... Um, Holding the distinction in your mind, the difference between the, what the gospel is and what the gospel does. And with that, the distinction between what is the responsibility of the church gathered and what is the responsibility of Christians scattered. Because there's a lot of things Christians are talking like the church should be doing, meaning in its institutional nature. That really is the biblical job of Christians as they live their lives in the world. Tim Keller says it this way in his book, Center Church. He says, the gospel, is not the, re- the gospel is not the results of the gospel. Just as faith and works must not be separated or confused, so the results of the gospel must never be separated from or confused with the gospel. He's, he illustrates it this way. I have often heard people preach it this way. The good news is that God is healing and will heal the world of all its hurts. Therefore, the work of the gospel is to work for justice and peace in the world. The danger of this line of thought is not... That the particulars are untrue. They're not. But it mistakes the effects for causes. It confuses what the gospel is with what the gospel does. We must not then give the impression that the gospel is simply a divine rehabilitation program for the world, but rather that it is an accomplished substitutionary work. Do you see the difference there between gospel of the cross and kingdom? How he's using it there? We must not depict the gospel as primarily joining something, Christ's kingdom program, but rather as, but rather as receiving something, should be as there, Christ's finished work. Now, here's why this is important. Because if you believe that the gospel is social justice, what does that mean? That means that you believe Christianity is works-based legalism. That's what you believe. You see, if you don't understand the gospel and the mission of the church, and if you can't distinguish between the gospel and the cross and the gospel of the kingdom, and you can't do this, here's what's going to happen. What you think is like, well, I'm glad we got free of that legalism and that mere evangelism stuff, and now I'm holistic, and we're going to do social justice, and my generation's going to count for something, and blah, blah, blah. Bullcrap. You're going to be the new legalist is what you're going to be. You know, it used to be you were holy if you didn't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. Now you're going to be holy if you like the right stuff on Facebook, and if you give $5 a month to sex trafficking stuff, and if you vote for the Democratic Party instead of the Republican Party, and if you're—whatever. You know, if you have at least two African-American friends, then you're a good person. Right? It's just the new legalism. You see, every generation has its new incarnation of legalism and works-based righteousness. And here's the thing. It was actually kind of good not to smoke, drink, and chew and go with girls who do. That's not bad. You know, people used to call it in the South clean living, right? It's clean living. That's not bad, right? The emphasis was on personal morality. Personal morality is good. But it's not the gospel. 
right? And now we've got socialistic, communitarian morality. And is it good? A lot of it's good. A lot of it's really silly, and you got to deal with social policies as you go. But it's generally good. I mean, loving poor people's good. Not being racist is good, right? Not being sexist is good. But is it the go- It's not the gospel. But if we believe the gospel, a lot more of that stuff is going to happen. And if our churches believe the gospel, and if they make disciples that understand the gospel, who, who have come to the gospel of the cross, who've been forgiven of their sins, they no longer have to worry about their own image. They're free of fear and pride, and they can live out of thankfulness and joy. Those people live beautifully when they scatter in the world, and much social justice will happen. Now, one quick last question. I'm sorry, I'm over time, guys. I'll be real quick. That is, okay, so then what? Does that mean we can't have, like, sex trafficking stuff at our church or, like, reading programs for underprivileged kids at our church? No. But here's the thing you need. You need to be careful about your language. What you must do as the church and what you might do as the church. As the local gathered church. That is, there's one thing you must do and there's many things you might do. What you must do is you must be a witness to the gospel and make disciples. As a church, you must do that. What you might do is anything that's loving. And these converge in this way. If you're making disciples, what must you teach disciples who you are teaching to obey everything that Jesus commanded? Well, right? You have to teach them to love your neighbor as yourself. What happens when you teach people to love their neighbor as themselves? They do all kinds of loving things to other people Sometimes programmatically. If we get these in the right order, if we understand the gospel theology of the New Testament, if we will accept a gospel that is of grace and faith that justifies us through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus and forgives us of our sins, the gospel of the cross will lead us to a gospel of the kingdom. We will become a people of love, but not out of pride and fear and not out of legalism and stupidity. We'll become bigger souled people rather than narrow legalistic people. And we will do all kinds of good in our churches as secondary applications of the gospel. We will become social justice sorts of people in every occupation we take. And we will drive these things globally and we won't be so narrow in that we'll say, well, now I'm into this form of social justice, but we're not going to do global missions anymore. When we're really focused on the gospel of the cross, we will say, I'm going to have a program for reaching underprivileged kids, and we're going to go to Pakistan, and we're going to preach the gospel at this church, and we're going to make sure we bring up these kids right, and, 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 and not have the kind of infighting of prayer against discipleship, against social action, against, against, against. So you can actually have a church with all kinds of people in it rather than just one kind of people in it. If we would get the gospel straight and the mission of the church straight, the church would do a whole lot more social good by being a whole lot more cross-centered. I think that's possible. I think that you can lead in that. And I think that your generation could champion it, if you will. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the for the opportunity to speak here and the attention of these students. And I pray that you would take the stuff that you agree with with what I said and that you'd press it home and form it into conversations and put it on the lips of professors and build it into these students. I pray that these students would not waste these years at this school. I pray that they would believe your word when you say that that the gospel is a great fight in a world um, that doesn't trust you and they have great work to do and preparation is important. I pray they take every minute of it seriously.
And I pray that we would be a gospel-centered people and that we wouldn't fall for um, misleading language about things like social justice, but yet we would be the most socially just church our generation can be, the most engaged church, the most holistic church we can be. And I pray that you would do that by leading us to the cross and making us gospel people. I pray these things in Jesus' name.